This is a conversation with an important gallerist in New York City. Her name is Magda Sawan. She's an art world figure who founded and owns New York's Postmasters Gallery with her husband, Tomas Banovich. A gallery for young and established contemporary artists, Postmasters is known for working with those in new media in the Tribeca neighborhood of New York City. It's considered to be a leading experimental gallery in New York. Magda Sawan is from Poland and she studied art history in Warsaw earning a master's degree. She worked in a shoe store and emboldened by a class she took at the new school taught by Estelle Schwartz, struck out with partner Tomas Banovich and opened the gallery in the East Village on Avenue A between 4th and 5th Streets in December 1984. The name of the gallery referenced being Post, the European Masters, alluding to postmodernism and also points to an early interest in mail art and its distribution by the Postal Service. I spoke with Magda about the art world, the art fair scene, running a gallery, and working with artists. This is the White Hot Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Noah Becker. Oh, no, that's um... fine. So I came uh, from Poland. Mm -hmm. I have a degree in art history. I opened the gallery together with Tomasz Banowicz, who is my partner of those 36 years. And he's a Hungarian and has a graduate degree in sculpture and set design. So Did we, you meet him in New York? We met in New York, yes. Although At an he, art opening or... Um, we met in New York through a Polish person that we were mutually acquainted with. He also studied um, at the Warsaw Academy when I was studying at the art history department. And those two schools were literary across the street, but um, unless in some drunken zone, we do not recall meeting in Poland. So we met here and uh, I think we met actually because Daria, who became a wife of Larry Rivers, um, invited both of us to a party at Larry's and that was kind of a big reveal. <laughs> right, <clears throat> right. So. And it was, um, tell me about the first location of Postmasters. Um, well, we were in East Village on Avenue A between four and five, four, fourth and fifth streets. Um, that was, you know, another of those little storefronts. There was a number of nice and substantial galleries that went on to do great things like International with Monuments and later on 303 and um, Colin Deland, before that uh, PPOW and Pat Hearn. So it was a very um, kind of um, robust little scene of uh, people that knew each other, were friendly, were collaborative and uh, learned from each other, which I think is an important component because um, you know, right now, a lot of people come either from 
a background that already has um, sort of a business component to it, or they come with the experience of working for other galleries. At that point, this was not the case. So we were sort of winging it and learning from each other. I learned how to make invoices from Meyer Weissman, who was one of the three proprietors of International with Monument probably one of the key galleries in East Village. Right. And um, this has been documented elsewhere. Like, have, have you written any uh, books about these experiences or are there any um, interviews that you've done where you talk about this period in the East Village in the New York art scene? Not so much. You know, I'm... Ah, well, here we are. We're doing it right now. Yeah, I'm kind of into living forward rather than right. recollections so right. you know of course this was a visible noticed important moment there have been things written about east village i think at this stage we may have certain um, kind of seniority and advantage because to my knowledge right now of the galleries that um, originated uh, or started in East Village, there is only us, PPOW, and 303. Uh, everything else, you know, the gallery lifespan as such is not forever, as we can easily notice looking through data of the last 30 years. Right. Um, yeah, it's been a challenging time. So I just kind of wanted to get the sort of atmosphere of the 80s art world from you in the East Village. And I'm, I'm kind of seeing a bit of that from what you were just talking about. And who were some of the early artists that you were showing? Um, when we worked there, one of the um, earliest artists I showed was David Diao, an Asian um artist that works mostly with kind of modernist tropes. So for a very long time, his presence in the art world was, was um, not an easy situation to place because he was bridging two cultures uh, together and not necessarily belonging to either. Um, it changed eventually, but I worked with him there in East Village. I worked with Perry Hoberman, one of the first artists of kind of new media and videos who at that time was working also as an um, uh, assistant with Laurie Anderson. Um, I worked with an artist, Eva Buchmuller, who was one of the key uh, members, founding members of Squat Theatre. Squat Theatre was a very important experimental theatre in the 80s. They, not so long ago, had a fascinating retrospective at the Whitney Museum. So we, we had these people, we had um, shown a lot of artists that, you know, disappeared. Not every artist carries on for 30 years. Some of them are you know, kind of flicker and go. Yes. I know that one. Yeah. And who are some of the artists that you kind of were showing before? Like some of them got fairly known and are still going. 
I guess it's hard to keep up because you've probably been involved with. Yeah, we showed a lot of artists. Some of them are here. Obviously, the nature of this business and this market is that, um, you know, you don't get to keep <laughs> people if you don't uh, go up to the very top of the ladders. I mean, you know, Gavin Brown and many, many other spectacularly significant, significant galleries don't um, lost a lot of artists to the upper levels. So, you know, of, on, the, on that end, I can say we started up Omer Fast, we started up Sue De Beer, we started up Spencer Finch, we were the first gallery to show Mary Kelly. Later on, we were uh, showing um, Austin Lee. So um, all these people left uh, for, you know, other opportunities, some happily, some less happily, but it's kind of the nature of the beast to some degree. Um, so you don't take it personally? No, certainly not from the artists. I think if they are given opportunities that you under no circumstance can provide because, uh, you know, there there is just so much more economic support that higher end can offer. Um, I can't, I can't really stand in the way I probably have an issue with, you know, these galleries just uh, taking and leaving you bitten in the dust, which interestingly, I have a story about uh, mm -hmm. an unusual story because one of the artists we worked with after East Village going into Soho was Matthew Weinstein, a fantastically interesting painter and after three or two or three shows with us he joined Ileana Zonabend gallery and it was Ileana Zonabend who insisted to pay us commission on sales of his work in the course of two or three of his shows there now how extraordinary is that that is okay that's a different, mm. uh, you know, it, it's just a different level. And I know Matthew. I've, I've been to Matthew's studio. He's a great artist. I, I wrote about him in Art in America. Right. And he's amazing. And, you know, he's very generous. I'm sure he had something to do with her uh, being so generous towards us. But uh, Ileana was Romanian, I'm Polish. I think there was also some undercurrent of Eastern European connection where she, uh, she seemed to be a bit of a mentor to me. And always I have that uh, respect uh, for her and her gallery and how she conducted herself in the art world in terms of both discoveries, ethics and collecting because all these three things are, are a larger, you know, component of uh, what defines a person in the business of the art. Right. For example, so wanna, uh -huh. Uh -huh. go ahead. For example, go ahead. one of the things she, she uh, kind of uh, told me was um, that the way his extraordinary collection was established is when, that she was buying the work from her artist, the works that nobody wanted, that didn't sell. 
And that, you know, is if you start to think about it, that is really a key of, um, of looking for art and artists that are a bit ahead of the moment where, you know, the kind of common support is not yet there. And therefore, the things that are supported are probably the most comfortable, more, most easy and most familiar pieces. And that's how Ileana Zonabend ended up with just extraordinary collection of unbelievable works from Rauschenberg and the pop art. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, this little snippet of uh, history and gossip. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful story. Yeah. So do you, do you kind of keep a collection of things people have given to you or do you collect specifically as a collector uh, or do you just work with the art that happens to be in the gallery? At uh, you know, I, I work uh, with the artists and my priority is to place them in places that are better than me. <laughs> so <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily position myself as the first to buy. I would like to be the first to sell. So, right. you know, uh, occasionally, of course, I would either buy or be given beautiful work. So we have some of it. Sometimes it comes to uh, my rescue when I have work that was given to me a while back or I bought it a while back and this uh, the squeeze moment comes and um, I can monetize that and support the gallery. This is not a gallery of wealth. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and it also is, I would say, rather uncompromisingly looking for new things and the things that reflect the time. And those are not criteria for monetary successes. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, I mean, there's so many different things that I could talk about with you, but I have a specific idea of what I want to know. And I find those anecdotes really interesting. The other thing I wanted to talk about was um, the specific moment or the specific idea that you have about art. Like what is, like when you see something and, and you think to yourself, I, that's not something I want to show, or you see an artist you've never heard of, and then there's something to it that, that you gravitate towards. Do you have a criteria for that, or is it intuitive, or how do you deal uh, with, with submissions? Well, it has to be intuitive <laughs> to large degree, but I, I do have... Um, I do have a couple of points that are important for me, or I should say for us, because a lot of choosing comes together with my partner, Tomasz. But the criteria is, um, first of all, why is something being made right now? So if I look at the work in a studio in 2021, it has to convince me that this is the time that this work had to be made and it carries this time Sam and it couldn't necessarily be made earlier. And, um, and the, 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 the kind of component of unfamiliar and uncomfortable is something that 
is very high on my ladder of things to to look and consider if i see the work and you know immediately you can categorize it understand it figure it out place it in a chain of you know sequential development of of this or that tendency that probably is not the work that would be a patient zero of something new so for me discomfort and unfamiliarity and a timestamp of the moment are those three things mm -hmm. so it has to have a kind of resonance with the present it does it, that's why you know uh, i show a lot of work that is is uh, content driven that is political that is uh, you know, deals with new media, because for me, those are components of the work that is being made right now. It's undeniable that um, it is important. I have a, you know, background of art history with all those degrees, and I rejected this because I have not been interested in, in a kind of perusing in sort of librarian way through the material that is centuries old or years old or decades old. The interesting part is, uh, you know, when I studied art history, nothing contemporary uh, was um, available to, uh, to uh, be approached within the territory of art history department it of course is very different you know you have people writing phds about um, artists that have five years to their career so it's very different but at my time you know one had to make this decision that you know you either deal with history and in, in his in history all the top uh, issues are kind of taken. It's very difficult to rewrite it. Of course, right now, you know, we have this, um, uh, say, tendencies to kind of gender balance the history of painting, for example. Uh, but it is not an easy task because the rejection of women as artists in those days was such that there were no that many women artists but you know that aside i i really believe uh that uh the most interesting thing that is happening around me in creative field in new forms of expression is exactly that new forms of expression and takes that have to do with 2021 as we are in 2021 mm -hmm. You've been very good with the press. The press um, finds you very interesting. I've seen you in the New York Times many, on many occasions, I've seen you in the New York Times and other publications. And I find you very quotable. For example, you were talking about how COVID was like the meteor that, or the asteroid that could possibly spell the end of art fairs. Is that, was that what you said? Um, Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I was talking about the dinosaurs. Um, 
the dinosaurs, yeah. But yeah, I did this like opinion piece for Artnet about uh, about the idea of what can come out on the other end of COVID and what would be the survival strategies for uh, for the galleries and um, operations that um, will come out successful on the other end. And, um, you know, it was very clear even then, and that is one of the proven points, that physical art fairs are certainly not returning in any viable form for quite a bit of time. There are these, you know, little clusters of activity and um, almost a wishful thinking of return, but it can never be returned unless, you know, we return to uh, the extreme patterns of travel for large global firsts in person, if we return to face-to-face uh, -face social interaction uh, that, you know, are seriously stilted at this time. So um, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a long road. And I also think, um, you know, it's not uh, completely tragic for me. I I don't participate in many art fairs. It's not my mode of presentation and communication. The work that sells mm -hmm. on art fairs is uh, not what I show. So in order to participate, we already have to sort of twist the narrative of what Postmasters is and kind of zoom into the most sellable, easily accessible work that, you know, you have uh, three seconds per person to see. Uh, so, and I always get, as you said, we always get great, great press. We always used to get great press and top boots on art fairs, and I always lost money. So, mm. you know, these are not the, you know, you have to find other modes of supporting what you represent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaking of COVID, I remember uh, I walked to your gallery from Brooklyn Heights and it was during Ruben Natal San Miguel's photography show. And you were letting very few people in the gallery one at a time. And you went through a period with that show where you were trying to get people to see it. And um, and how did it work for you trying to navigate having an opening in the midst of COVID? Well, the opening happened exactly on the day when the city locked down. So we had, uh, I think, uh, six or seven people that were our personal and Ruben's personal friends at the opening. And, and then, uh, you know, we had to somehow project this exhibition out uh, for, uh, for the audience that is not IRL, that cannot see it physically. So um, the huge effort at this early stage was made to push this exhibition through, uh, you know, all possible channels of social media and, um, and internet platforms. And we did that. And a big help was that uh, this opening that didn't happen was nevertheless 
covered by the New York Times as the opening that didn't happen. So (laughs) nevertheless, zoomed onto this as an event and helped us and helped Ruben to be visible. And, you know, it was truly tragic because the show, uh, uh, it was uh, called Women Are Beautiful. And it was an update of, you know, the perception of how image of a woman and the basically a definition of um, of a woman has changed from those days of Larry Vinogrand. A spectacular show. Right now, it's a digital show at the Mint Museum. It had numerous, uh, you know, attention points, and there will be a book. And I hope that at some point there will be a place that will show it in its entirety so you know it may happen uh, and we lived through it i was the most privileged of all people because i saw it (laughs) so many times for those four uh, three months because it lasted until june and in june uh, the city allowed uh, more limited access. So before that, we literally had you and five other people under superbly restrictive conditions. And later we had uh, two or three weeks of more access. But, you know, of course, it had nothing um, even um, remotely representative to what happens to the open exhibition. And since then, since then, how many have you had a number of exhibitions since Ruben Natal's? Yes, we, you know, from June, we run, uh, we run shows every, not every month, because I believe these days, the exhibitions need to be longer. Uh, But we never stopped that we were allowed to make shows. Uh, by, you know, the the city and the conditioning of um, how they are presented with all the rules and restrictions. And uh, we had a show of uh, Serena Stevens right after we closed the Never Opened shows. And then we had a show with Steve Mumford, who uh, was... uh, presenting watercolors and drawings from protests and pandemics. So this had, again, this touch of connection to current time and the reality. And uh, yeah, then we did a big show with Kate Giordano. And right now we have a show called Echo Spirits that is sort of a um, metaphorical take on men's place in the world between nature and technology. Very beautiful show. And, you know, I I fight for those things to be open and accessible for those people in the city. Because, uh, you know, not everybody left. I'm very determined to uh, make this experience for the people that stayed here. And there is not that many uh, places of cultural operations that are, you know, presenting you with the actual art face to face in real time in real place. So, you know, this way the whole art world turned very, very local. And 
it's still maybe not forever or maybe we are lucky um new york since june did not shut down its galleries they were shut in i don't know london belgium berlin different places los angeles in new york somehow we still have this privilege to be allowed having those exhibitions and this privilege to have those exhibitions accessible to people that want to see them. So you feel that things are normalizing to an extent. I mean, it's great to, in a certain sense, because there's a lot of space in galleries and museums for people to kind of avoid each other in a distancing way. So I think it, it, it could could be something that normalizes somewhat. Yeah, I think it normalizes um, possibly on fairly local scales. So the galleries that are in the place where you live, because uh, changing locations and travel and commuting is harder than it was before. And it's going to be hard for quite a while. But these local capsules of art scenes, I believe, have a good chance to uh, to sort of locally flourish but so it's kind of brought us back to the pre-art fair yeah art world yeah so in that way you know this is you know i'm sorry that somebody cannot go through one pier or one tent and see 600 artworks they have to come to say tribeca and see 30 galleries that show really interesting artwork and, you know, to uh, breathe the air between one space and the next one, I think it's a huge positive. COVID or not. Yes. So, so, it so is happening. District-wise, district mm -hmm. you were the East Village in the 80s. Then, then you were Soho. Yeah. And then you were Chelsea. Yes, and uh, I and, was. And now yes, you're we left Chelsea in 2013 after 15 years there, uh, because we were totally outpriced, um, and um, we we found this remarkable space here in Tribeca. Uh, so I am here, kind of uh, early on, with no other galleries around me just dependent on our own kind of... Well, the side of Broadway you're on is, the other side of Broadway has more galleries popping up uh, down that way. Well, not necessarily, you know. Uh, I think um, right now, yes, there is more there, but, you know, we have artist space, we have Anton uh, Andrew Krebs, we have PPOW right on our side of the street of the of Broadway, not to mention a whole bunch of younger places that are in those large Broadway buildings. So the sort of echo infrastructure of the neighborhood is not related to Broadway as a divider. It's just related as, you know, a bit of a hub downtown that is from from um, Chinatown to Hudson Street. And right. I was more more kind of thinking of how unique your location is 
it is unique on a certain level, yes, I would agree, because we are not a part of, you know, what is described as Tribeca uh, neighborhood for living. It is the most expensive zone, zip code in the U.S. It's very wealthy neighborhood. It's very loosely populated neighborhood because people own very large spaces and very few of them do that. And where we are uh, is, you know, it is across Broadway. It is next to the courts. It is next to the homeless shelter. And it is next to Chinatown and Vietnamese restaurants. So in certain ways, there is more neutrality in that side of uh, Tribeca, I think, because you are not defined, you are not defined by, you know, the parameters of the neighborhood. So, uh, but it, in the end, it really doesn't matter. I, I think in the end, it matters what you show. Yes. The atmosphere was more more what right. I was talking about because it is fascinating that you've been in so many different neighborhoods. You've been in all the primary art neighborhoods and kind of um, a really integral part of those neighborhoods at the time. Uh, do you feel that uh, it's very competitive between dealers or do you feel a lot of camaraderie and friendship from other dealers or does it vary? It varies, but... I think definitely there is a there is um, a kind of common cause that uh, has been created within dealers that um, you know maybe it doesn't necessarily extend uh, all the way up to the top, but I think there is a lot of. Um, common ground, helping each other, uh, being uh, courteous, mm -hmm. working together. Mm -hmm. You know, there's uh, Tribeca walks, there is talks, there is, you know, we on the phone mm -hmm. with each other. Uh, I recommend well, the reason I was saying that is because you're very opinionated and you're you, what a lot of what you say is very quotable and also very kind of history changing. I've heard a, uh, and seen a number of um, interviews with you over the past decade or more where you really say what you want to say about what's happening. And you're one of the few people that really express. Oh, you, exactly wanna, you want you want me to, to take it back <laughs> that there is camaraderie? In the uh, no, um, no. No, but maybe maybe I could say in even though we're going through maybe one of the more difficult times with the pandemic, um, what, uh, maybe you could say something about how how you what is it is there some is there anything that's really kind of concerning you in the art world or bothering you? Or... Uh, well, yeah, there is this other side that we of course have you know camaraderie locally that uh, i recommend another gallery and they recommend me on the other hand there is uh, this incredible divide of um, the economics and and the the domination of the market and the market uh, sort of being the poison of the system to the degree that uh, you know it's 
much harder to survive it now in the pandemic than it was before because the support structure is even uh, right. even more uh, fragmented you know the people that that right now to large degree are buying art are people that do um kind of speculative thinking and they uh and they buy brands and they buy from brands so that leaves uh, a lot of experimentation and a lot of uh, you know, younger work with no chance. It's very, very difficult. What do you mean by, buy, you mean buying artists that have a sort of a branded name from a branded gallery? Well, you know, a, major, a majority of collecting, this is what happened, right? The pandemic um, just uh, in, in a world at, world at large made the top much richer cut really hard through the middle and um, impoverished the bottom in, in like a larger situation. And if you, if you kind of superimpose that onto the art gallery system, this is exactly what's going on. The, the middle of people that collected art, the, the kind of heart of collecting that I call uh, which is the people that do it out of, uh, you know, passion, curiosity, and true, you know, interest and, and a desire to live and understand that work that is made in their time. These people are exactly the people that um, I think had their means cut by this pandemic just like the galleries and but nothing really of that significance happened on the top you know uh, a lot of these um these uh super wealthy people are uh, more wealthy <laughs> that's the result of it and um, right. and these are not the people that treat art as um uh, intellectual, cultural, or aesthetical adventure. They treat it as a, a luxury good commodity and, um, and a speculative material that sits in a fucking vault, okay? So. So that's one of the things that you think about that's unfortunate. I can see that yes. happening. And uh, so do you, do you think there, what do you think is going to happen to collecting? Do you think the next generation is going to be collecting two-dimensional work or do you think they're moving more towards just buying electronics and ignoring collecting? Uh, you know, I don't really have a clear answer for that. I think, um, I think uh, the answer lies with younger people. If there is the art that talks to them, then it will go on if there is if the art is perceived as sort of an old world activity of you know somebody making canvas uh, of uh, scenes that they don't relate to maybe it's more difficult to understand i mean you know if you really look at the art practice these days uh a lot of people a lot of artists, the creative impulses go into new media, into video, into um, 
into software, you know, the spectrum of what is perceived as art and creative activity is so much larger than what is defined by the market and market defined is defined by, you know, flat things, occasionally three-dimensional. So, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's not a pretty picture in terms of how we all survive. I have some of that. I have so many years of working with uh, more commodified work and the work that is less material. So one thing supports the other, you know, I'm doing this kind of tightrope balancing act, but I'm never gonna stop being interested in work that is, uh, you know, that is just cutting ahead and going ahead but this and challenging, challenging. but uh, you know if it challenges me it means it will challenge somebody else five years from now and how it survives right. these five years is a big question well i i must think about i've seen a number of shows at your space and and it's always um i have it's almost like going into a museum or sometimes the work that I've seen at the place is either going to a museum or has been in a museum. It's, um, it's really interesting. Yeah, well, you know, what does it say about museums? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, we don't have a lot of shows curated from the outside because I, I, it's a huge privilege to curate an exhibition. It's a much different thing to put a show together when, when you want the work of different artists to kind of communicate and bounce off one another versus how you, uh, how you present a single artist uh, work in its own capsule. So, so that's almost yeah. So that's almost like and that approach is approach, you know you, you, it's much harder to uh, you know monetize a group show unless you load it with uh, you know names that sell that galleries don't want to give to you because they sell. So why would <laughs> they do that often? Uh, you know, I mean, those are the the kind of difficulties, mm -hmm. but. Right now we have a show uh, that uh, combines work that is supremely uh, material uh, and uh, organic with the work that is about machine learning and communication with uh, artificial intelligence. We have this incredible video, Christine Lucas, how she improvises a communication with AI. Um, and and then we have you know a tree trunk and then we have a Hugh Hayden carved school chair so there's there's a full spectrum of things that um, in a group show can appeal to some people and um, and kind of fly above the head of others that are just like zoomed on one thing mm -hmm. And what do you have planned for the future? Do you have some things you could share that are not top secret that are coming up? Uh, well, we have, um, we have, you know, first of all, we need to say that 
in the, the thing that we learn from COVID is that the, the most important uh, ability that you have to have is adaptation because you can have plans, you can think that this is what you want to do, and then, you know, something happens and you have to adjust and change. So at this moment, we have a plan to exhibit a kind of mid-career Hungarian artist, a woman that works on the scale of Pollock, but in much more technological, amazing ways. Her name is Marta Kuchora. And um, that's, uh, if, if the crates come, we're going to have a show. If they don't, we don't. So right. I don't really know. I have a show right. after that plant with um, with a young artist that is originally from Guadalupe and now lives in Paris that um, my director, you know, we have a gallery in Rome as well. And um, oh, right. he, he was recommended by her. His name is Kenny Duncan amazing young sculptor and uh, multimedia artist that we showed some of his things in Rome. We want and we plan to do a show with him here. And, uh, and again, if we can get out some stuff from, you know, a warehouse in Zurich and whatever is in Paris, whatever we can produce with him not being here, you know, these are like things that, um, you know, parts have to fit. So we don't know. Yeah. Uh, I have plans, but uh, like every okay. other person having plans, they may fall apart tomorrow. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, it's been a tremendous honor to have you on the podcast. And uh, for people listening, uh, check out Postmasters Gallery in Tribeca in New York City. And I hope we can continue this dialogue moving Great. forward. Great. Thank you very much. Don't take me too seriously. And have a have a Yeah, you too. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Art World, the White Hot Magazine podcast, where we feature the best art in the world. Read us on the web at www.whitehotmagazine.com. Visit us on Instagram and other social media platforms. The podcast can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all places where podcasts can be found. I'm your host, Noah Becker. 